This is the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, brought to you by FinPro Search Partners. Insurance companies are businesses and they need to look for the long term and be sustainable. We went from zero to one and now it's going from one to a hundred. Insurance as, as a concept, as a kind of service, is brilliant. The execution is what we're looking at now. I think the companies that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to understand and master the art of intent. When we talk about innovation, we lean too heavily to think about technology and we don't think about creating a culture of innovation. I think innovation is essentially continuous improvement of existing processes and platforms and product, right? It's got to be easy. It's got to be seamless. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Bobby, who's CEO of Rainbow. Um, Bobby, good to see you. How are you? Cheers, Alex. I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having good. me. Good. No, not at all. You, you've got you've gone full branding. I like that. We've got the we've got the backdrop, we've got the uh <laughs> we've got the zip up fleece as well. So um I'm always really jealous of that. That's that's why I'm pointing it out. I've been looking at that at the moment, but um I'm trying to avoid going down the Patagonia route because then I'll just look like a, a finance bro and a you know I've I've got enough problems. I work in recruitment, I've got enough bad reputations. So um look. Bobby, before I um, I get sidetracked, it'd be really nice um, to introduce the Rainbow Business because I think you've got a really interesting um, story to tell. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, yeah, please introduce yourself and, and the Rainbow Business, please. Sure. So I've been uh, working in insurance for about eight years, was working in software and the technology industry more broadly for about eight years before that, too. And uh, this is my second InsureTech uh, that I've started. Rainbow is almost two years old. We're a couple of weeks away from our two-year birthday. And it is a an MGU that is focused on small commercial insurance. We have a few things that make our approach unique. Uh, but ultimately, it's all about customer centricity and sort of having a specialized underwriting approach and doing that all with modern technology that we build in-house and our engineering team is sort of a key part of our team and our value proposition. And we'll talk about that together. So uh, that's that's Rainbow at a high level. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I think that's the important thing, because I think outside looking in, um, we started talking and, I, you know, I wanted to say, I didn't want to, I don't want to say just uh, a digital MGU, because that sounds you know, disrespectful to you know, some of our kind of insure tech brethren that we work with. But Part of me was like, where's the interest here? But I think what I found interesting is that, that you're building your own tech. So I kind of wanted to ask you, like, why did you choose to go down that route? And, uh, you know, where did you think potentially there were some gaps that you needed to address by building your own technology rather than, for example, put it put it together with some of the platforms that are out there already? So I think that's very much a result of just the, the team around us and my co-founders and our culture. Mm-hmm. So all of us, myself and my two other co-founders are really from technology first. Like we we started our professional careers working in technology and software development and sort of found insurance as this great opportunity to uh, use software uh, to create value. So it's kind of one of those things where we can't help ourselves, but want to build the software ourselves. And uh, like anyone, I think, who is very particular about seeing things done a a certain way. It's hard to 
uh, substitute that with a number of off the shelf solutions. You'll kind of always be thinking about like, ah, you know, it doesn't, there's a seam here and I want it to be perfect. And, and uh, we're going to have to do a manual process here. And that doesn't mean that we don't have to do manual processes while we're building software because it's time consuming and there's a lot that goes into it. But um, we just felt like having sort of a whole cloth solution that we had built ourselves would give us complete control and flexibility in terms of what we wanted to do. It would reduce the likelihood that a key part of our stack, like the company gets acquired by another company and then has to force us to go in a different direction. A lot of times those types of uh, news events happen, you know, when you least want them to happen, right? As things are starting to work, you're like, oh, I'm going to have to rebuild this whole thing. And uh, so, yeah, those were those were the reasons. And I think the other thing is that we just didn't, like I said at the beginning, we, we really enjoy building software. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, it's enjoyable and it's a, it's a challenging but sort of fun exercise. Uh, so those are some of the reasons why we've decided to take that approach. Yeah, and I think that's natural. I mean, something that we look at, look, look, obviously we're a talent-focused organization that, you know, FinPro is is the business in which pays for um, all of the podcasting um, and we're a search firm. And and one of the things that we notice with founders is that they're either tech, there's a, either tech bias with the founding team or or there tends to be an insurance bias with the founding team. The reality is you'll, you'll, you'll tend to overpay probably for the other experience that you need. So if you're a a tech bunch uh you'll kind of need to buy in that insurance experience and vice versa but right. then that what that does mean is that if you're trying to do something like build if i got an insurance focused founder they're going to hugely overpay to build their own technology because they're going to have to build that entire team whereas if you're bringing that technology to the table it's relatively inexpensive to in-house that because you're not making some of the same mistakes is it i don't know that's my theory I, I don't know if you'd agree with that at all i think there's like the variable cost of buying the software which is often a fixed cost itself or i should say the fixed cost mm. is buying the software but then mm. if you are uh if you are taking the insurance first approach i think another sort of variable cost that is perhaps maybe not anticipated as carefully is kind of, you are going to have the variable cost of having people that have to maintain the software and make mm. changes as you are evolving. Um, one of the key objectives we have, like our North Star as an underwriting company is to produce uh, superior loss performance or loss ratios. And so one thing that we think about on an ongoing basis and sort of the brain trust that we have around this exercise involves those insurance lifers and those insurance practitioners who have been in the trenches is thinking about coupling what goes into good underwriting and strong loss performance with software and how can the software and the loss performance monitoring really meet each other as closely as possible so there's always going to be a marrying of people plus the solution um and so again i i, I feel like if you're building it yourself you are taking a risk um certainly not just from a cost, but, you know, building good software just takes time. Like building anything good takes time. And mm -hmm. uh, that's one of those things that it's, uh, it, it can be harder to forecast, especially if you haven't built it before. So, mm -hmm. but like you said, we've added insurance practitioners from the very beginning. Um, one of our very first hires was um, an industry veteran who has over 20 years of experience building sort of small commercial focused MGAs. Um, and they've now started to build out a team. So our team is roughly um, almost half insurance sort of backgrounds and then half software and engineering backgrounds. Perfect. The perfect mix. The perfect mix. I, I think that's 
you know that what's what we get asked for the most is is senior level talent that can either talk tech or talk insurance to tech people uh and and it's and it's that it's kind of being that conduit is is quite often the skill set so you know where you're starting with the tech first and i think i think that's what i think is important about it is that you can you're able to articulate within the business quickly so the iterations of a let's say an insurance person that falls out of a big insurer that wants to has a big idea around a technology platform for insurance things are going to get lost in communication it, it, it's like going to get a haircut you know you you both go in you describe the haircut but the amount of times you actually walk out with the haircut you want is um quite surprising although a guy with uh, no hair talking about haircuts is uh is a <laughs> the irony's not lost on me but i, I think the analogy is good i remember having hair and having haircuts but sure. um moving 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 on i think i think one of the things that we've not highlighted enough is that so you've launched and, and the product suite you've gone after, you've gone after a very particular vertical. So, um, and it's one dear to my heart as well, because I worked in hospitality. So it's, you're specifically going after kind of right restaurants, hospitality businesses with the first iteration of, of the business. So to dive into that, the idea is that you're going to launch other vertical sectors, aren't you, across, um, across insurance, but this is just where you're starting. Yeah, exactly. So, a couple of things there. Um, so although I have the technology background and, and my co-founders do as well, you know, I've been in insurance now for about, like I said, about eight years, which I know compared to some people is not that long, but uh, you know, our most important metric is loss performance. And so we are very much an underwriting first company. Um, I know I have the branded sort of technical fabric gear that maybe you're not seeing if you're in a traditional insurance business, but uh, we we really think about underwriting at the core of everything that we do. Our, our playbook is to have a program administrator like model where we launch individual verticals and each of those verticals will bring specialty underwriting um, that allows us to use specialized data sets that are specific to that vertical, have specialized personnel, which we think are absolutely critical to the success of the performance of that vertical. And uh, we're going to stand up these individual verticals and roll them out all on our same unified digital platform. And we're hoping to be able to get some lift from the growing incumbent distribution force that we have here in the US. So when we launch program two, hopefully there we're gonna get some immediate lift from the agents that provide business to program one and, and so on. And also as we go, hopefully we're gonna start to get data insights and advantages across multiple programs that can sort of create this virtuous circle of, of evaluation and reevaluation of the portfolio. Um, so we can feel really convinced as can our capacity partners, because we write on fronted capacity about the qual not just the quality of the business, but you know, more specifically to that point, what it is exactly that we've written. It's not just that it's a restaurant, it's that it's a restaurant with these very specific characteristics. So food and beverage was the very first vertical that we chose. The product that we offer is a BOP product. That's our product that we've developed with actuaries and with underwriting expertise. It's specific to the food and beverage industry. We don't really write bars and taverns um, or nightlife, let's just say, but we can write basically any establishment that uh, serves food. And one of the nice things about being specialized, especially when we're in an environment like we're in now where capacity is just going through all kinds of changes and it's just generally more limited, 
by being more specialized and only focusing on a smaller subset of, of industry codes, we can go a lot deeper in terms of like our, our eligibility um, and the types of risks that we want to that we want to underwrite. And last thing I'll say is that it allows us to sort of be very customer centric. So before we launched the program, we spent countless hours and spoke to hundreds of restaurant owners. We spoke to agents that specialize in restaurant business and tried to understand what were gaps that we could fill um, in the market with our first program. And a lot of those sort of capabilities are the things that we want to replicate as we go into these other verticals. So that's a little bit about sort of the playbook. And, and then specifically, like, why restaurants? I mean, I think there's like a couple different reasons. One, um, <clears throat> sort of at the emotional level, me and the rest of the team just genuinely liked the concept of restaurants. It's an environment that all of us pretty naturally have spent time in. We've all been to restaurants. We all enjoy eating. Um, and we don't think it's one of those things that open AI is going to take away from us. Like there will still be eating at restaurants. Um, it's also a category that has undergone a lot of change. Hopefully it doesn't exactly. It's undergone a lot of change as a result of COVID in particular, like the nature of the business and the nature therefore of the risks of that business have evolved, like where the business is happening. Is it indoors versus outdoors? Is there more takeaway? Is there more or less alcohol? There's inflation for food costs. There's a lot of, there's different hours of operation. Their staff changes all the time. These are all things that like really change the risk. And then the third big reason is that we didn't really feel like restaurants were like the average capacity provider's favorite category. You know, like not a lot of people were coming to us being like, we really need a restaurant program. And as we dug into that, you know, we're curious people. And as we dug into that, we're like, well, but why is that? Like, it's huge category. Like, of course, you all have some restaurant business in your book. We heard consistently that most of the capacity providers just weren't as confident as they would like to be about exactly what was in their restaurant book and their portfolio. They didn't feel like they had a, a good feel for the business, basically. Um, and so now you see a lot of carriers sort of pulling out of the class entirely or really curtailing their appetite. And so that created kind of a, hopefully a right place, right time opportunity for us. Um, we have an admitted product too. Last thing I'll say is it's an admitted product. And so we roll out state by state. And I think as we've gone into more and more states, we've definitely seen that a lot of those points in our thesis have so far proven to be true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting, particularly that point around, you know, no one's screaming to, to, to necessarily write this business, because I think if you take a, a blanket view of restaurant food service industry, it's quite a risky business for not particularly high premiums, for, for you know, so. But I think that's in in exactly in the, it's in the detail and and it's so fascinating. And this is what InsureTech is doing for us, right? Is is allow is allowing you to probably quite quickly with good tech actually drill down onto what is this business and like restaurant A and restaurant B may look the same, but how much are they doing kind of external? How much is that? What is their footfall like? How much, you know, do they sell alcohol? If, if so, how much? Like getting into the kind of nitty gritty of actually what this business really is like. Two restaurants can look externally very similar or certainly on paper very similar, whether it's revenue, location, but actually be intrinsically very, very different businesses and therefore uh, much riskier businesses. Um, I speak with some authority. I used to work in restaurants for a long time. In fact, before I entered the insurance industry, I, uh, that was all my... Um, I still love it. I mean, it's, it's quite, it's very dear to my heart. Lots of my friends still work in the trade and run restaurants in London. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating sector, but it's a classic sector where 
I think we're too guilty of looking at what's the turnover, how many people work there, what's the location, and that's about it. And then we kind of blanket price it. So it's really opportune for a business like Rainbow to turn up and go, we can one, do better than that from a pricing perspective. And that's that's internally delivers to your goals and, and your investors' goals to say, like, let's be a really good underwriting operation. But the other side of it, which is important, which is what you said as well, is that customer experience has probably not been great. And I'd, I'd, I was wondering what your customer kind of feedback has been since you've been able to offer them this slightly more bespoke experience. Because if it's anything like recruitment, if I, I run a recruitment business and they go, what's your turnover? How many staff you've got? Where are you based? But it's nothing like, you know, working for So we're a search firm, senior level. Uh, we only do permanent placements. If you talk to a business of the same size, same turnover that places low-level temporary contractors in kind of warehouses it's an inherently riskier business but it doesn't look that they look the same on paper in, in terms of the questions we've been asking so yeah what's been that kind of feedback from the kind of customer base two years in so uh although we are two years in we only started writing business about six months ago so in the six months that we've been live the first 18 months were basically spent building the platform and the team and getting the resources and the capacity and everything. Um, and now a lot of those pieces are going to be extendable to those next programs. And so we plan to launch subsequent programs a lot more efficiently while continuing to scale the restaurant program. Um, mm -hmm. So although restaurant owners are ultimately our customers, are we don't really interact with the policyholders directly. Um, all of our, our users and all of our distribution really happens through agents. And like I was mentioning, some of those agents that we work with are specializing in restaurants, like they'll have a book of a certain size of premium. Um, and some of them are more general commercial lines focused agents, um, whether they're an independent or an independent that's part of a network or a more corporate operation um, or an aggregator of some kind. We, we basically take a pretty broad swath of folks that we work with. Um, the feedback from the agents has really been the following, and it's been pretty consistent. Number one, Rainbow is coming to market at an opportune time for us as, as agents who are trying to place restaurant business because we have fewer and fewer options for places to place the business. I think related to that, another thing that we hear is just a general skepticism from agents about, well, what's going to make sure that Rainbow lasts? Because most of the carriers that we've worked with that write restaurants will kind of dip their toe in the market. And then right as we're coming up to maybe the second renewal, they will just pull out of the market. And that's very frustrating mm -hmm. for them as agents. Of course it would be, right? So we're trying to take as long a term of view as possible. Um, we're not really looking to win on price in every scenario, which is a, a lever that I think a lot of other insure techs and small commercial have pulled. Um, we want to win on the combination of superior coverage and and price. And I think that's important. Um, another piece of feedback that we get consistently from agents is that we offer exceptionally high quality service, which is, you know, you'll hear universally that that's just so important for these small commercial accounts. Um, where, like you said, the premium dollars aren't necessarily huge. And agents, you know, the old expression, time is money. That's like really true when you're an agent. And there's another expression, which is that you might spend as much on an account with 10000 in premium as you will on one with $100,000 in premium. And again, mm. in a model where you're primarily being compensated on commission, 
it's kind of a no-brainer which account you'd want to be spending the equal amount of time on. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't want those smaller accounts. You just want them to be placed as efficiently as possible. So customer service for us is really two parts. It's the ease of use for the placement process through our own quote bind issue system. And then one of the things that's different about us as a tech-enabled MGU in small commercial is that we have underwriters on staff. Some of the other companies that are in our same category, although are not directly competitors, when you submit, it's either a quote or a decline and, and that's it. There's no, let me refer it, let me speak to an underwriter. Um, and that works fine for certain types of accounts and I think for certain classes. But what we've seen is that by having that human underwriter that has expertise in the class, you just more organically build that rapport with the agent, which the agent appreciates. And frankly, which is a lot more familiar to the agent. And so there's that, mm -hmm. comfortability that comes with familiarity. And then because they're more comfortable, they start bringing us other high quality opportunities, larger account opportunities. And we just wouldn't have seen those things if it was, if we were just viewed as like uh, a simple quote bind issue platform. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. a, that maybe long-winded, but that's a little bit in terms of like what we're, what we're experiencing thus far. No, it's, it's, it's really good to understand the thinking because, you know, one of the questions I had I used to ask this question. I mean, the podcast's been going quite a frowning, frowning amount of time now, about three years now. But but um, one of the questions I, I would have asked if someone was choosing like agent distribution, like why did you go down that route and why did you not go direct? But I think that answers that's been kind of answered by the market for us. It's, it's it's too bloody expensive most of the time. But I think I think in your case, when you're targeting such a specific segment, there was an opportunity to potentially go direct. And so I was intrigued to say. When there was that opportunity, um, did is it something you considered? Because you can own a niche as long as you're if you're not greedy and you own a niche, it's very difficult to say, right, we're gonna go into motor, we're gonna go into home and compete. But if you're gonna go into we're only gonna do food and beverage industry, there's a you know, this there's very specific uh you know, literature, media, there's a way of attacking it that's kind of a bit more focused than something like that. So is it something you ever considered or was it always going to be agency distribution? So my previous company was also distributing small commercial sized policies through an online platform to retail agents. And so I just had that experience with retail agent distribution. It was something that I felt as though I could navigate and that I'd had good experiences with. Um, so I honestly never really considered going direct um, and we have absolutely no plans to do that. Part of, I mean, there's like kind of two reasons. One, which is just the more practical reason is that in the US, a very small percentage of small commercial insurance, I always see different numbers, but it's as low as 10% and it's as high as 15 or maybe 20% is sold direct. The agent still plays an incredibly important role in the distribution of the products. And the second reason is, again, loss ratio performance is really what we wanna be known for. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence that the highest quality business from a loss performance perspective passes through the hands of an agent. And that's simply because if you're a restaurant owner, you're probably doing that because you're passionate about cooking and about serving your customers. and not because you're secretly an expert in exactly what insurance you need. And like you said, restaurants have many different types of risk and that risk is constantly evolving as the business sort of just goes through a single one year cycle of the policy term. 
And if you don't have somebody who has experience saying, oh, no, you really do need cyber insurance or you really do need um, employment practices type insurance or you need a certain limit for the type of cooking that you do, that's what's going to if you don't have that, that's what's going to result in those kind of like very painful claim scenarios. And especially for restaurants that tend to operate with very limited cash on hand, one really bad claim can absolutely sink a business. And so as simple as it might sound, just finding an agent and spending the time to tell them about your business so that they can find the right coverage for you, hopefully with Rainbow, um, that really does have a positive benefit to you as a as a business owner. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully I fully agree. Um, someone that uses an agent myself uh, now, and I didn't used to because because. I just I I want to spend my time doing the job that I do. So completely uh, echo that. Um, talking about we we've mentioned capacity a few times. Um, who is your capacity partner? Why were they the right partner for you? Really, kind of interested to dig into that. Well, if you're happy to share, I'm I'm, I'm sure that's not hidden information. No, it's not. I mean, uh, I'm I'm definitely happy to. So this was one of these areas that was absolutely a blind spot for me. Uh, mm -hmm. At my last company, Pathpoint, we would only sell the products uh, of other carriers. Um, and so we never really had to go out and seek capacity for programs that we were trying to structure. Um, but it was it was a, an industry that I was always sort of adjacent to. Um, you know, we were members of target markets and these other trade associations. So I would see that happening and it just sort of seemed mysterious and alluring to me, but I didn't really know what goes on there. Um, I found that from my experience, finding the right capacity partner is actually quite similar to finding the right investor partners if you take on investment as a as an early stage company. So our capacity provider is Accelerant. Um, they've been fantastic to work with. Um, I was fortunate to know several of the folks at the senior leadership level of Accelerant and sort of thought highly of them. And so it was a natural type of conversation. And um, they've really been supportive to us as a admitted program, which has quite a few more moving parts as far as getting those products live compared to a non-admitted program. Um, but uh, yeah, the experience was we we came to market looking for capacity in Q3 of last year. So like arguably one of the worst times in recent history to go get capacity. Um, and it was a very eye-opening experience talking to both the traditional company market sort of capacity providers and then those fronting specialists uh, that would offer paper and or reinsurance. And um, yeah, I think the, the keys for us were, again, like finding the right investor, you it's important to get the right logo of an investor. You know, like I find that a lot of founders, especially first time founders who haven't gone through the pain of making this mistake, try to just optimize for the logos of who invests. And they put a lot less emphasis on what is their actual track record in the category that you are trying to build a company for? And who are the people who you can call and have hard conversations with when things mm -hmm. don't go as because probably they've seen other companies make the same mistakes as you, at least some number of them. I find that that's like also very true with capacity. Um, they Most of the folks in the capacity world have been in the reinsurance or insurance worlds their whole career. They've seen huge programs blow up in a bad way. They've seen small programs become very big, like in a good way. And uh, 
there are patterns that you can observe in terms of what the preconditions were for those things happening. Um, being able to pick up the phone and not feel like, I really don't want to tell this person this because I don't know what's going to happen. That is like incredibly empowering as an entrepreneur, as a founder of a business. Um, and I think that goes, that really goes a long way. Um, and the other thing is, I think you want to, uh, find a part. And I realized that especially with the limited capacity in our market, and this is even more so true for certain categories that are particularly troubled or challenged right now, you don't have the luxury to say, well, I'm only going to work with the people I really want to work with. So I'm, this is very much like, a, uh, I guess it's like a first world problem to have in terms of like having a partner that you're really happy with. Again, it's like, make sure that you are back to that relationship piece, like it's the type of partner that you're going to want to have a regular interaction with, not someone who you only have to check in with because it feels like an obligation. You want to have them help you grow the program because remember, they are ultimately the ones, especially in our case, Accelerant's both our fronted paper as well as our reinsurance, um, which has been really nice because I basically just have one set of relationships to manage rather than two. Um, which may or may not have sort of different incentives that could be like misaligned. So that's another thing where we've been really fortunate. Um, but again, shout out to Accelerant. They've been great partners. I would recommend them to anyone. Um, it's just that like you want that alignment for them to want to see you grow. And just remember that they are the ones absorbing all the risk in most MGA models, right? So they very much have a truly vested interest to see you put good business on the books and uh, and do it in a way that's sustainable. Well, I, the, the, I think the point you made about it being like picking a, an investment partner was 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 a really, really, really smart one because I, I, we think about it a lot. I mean, we 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 talk with startup businesses and scale up businesses all the time, and a lot of those will be variations of an MGA MGU model. Um, and obviously, we were lucky enough to have. Jeff Radke, CEO of Accelerant, on on the podcast, and one of the things we talked about, which I thought resonated with your story, is that one, um, this is what they do. Like this is their method of distribution, as it were. You know, they work with businesses like yours and provide capacity. So you're not dealing with a carrier that that's not their core business. Right. And I think when you work with carriers, it's not their core business. It's like working with investors that don't know your space. They need they need as much handholding as 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 kind of and reassurance and, and probably and more so than you probably would want to and that's you know that's obviously a blanket rule i'm not I'm, I'm most people are experts in kind of putting this capacity out but it, it, you know when you're talking with some business like accelerant this is what they do and secondly they have a longer term view on capacity because right. they've done this before and they want to get out of your way and give you enough bandwidth to kind of grow because one of the things that i think it's important to recognize you're going to build out these different verticals so does that capacity have um is it is it already baked in that you can you can go into different verticals and and they will still support you on those different verticals not in our particular treaty like mm -hmm. the treaty that we have for this program is very specific to the food and beverage bop but i think yeah. to your point that's where the appeal of accelerant or any partner that specializes in small commercial really is felt and is sort of like uh, realized because they are always looking to have conversations about kind of what's next. In fact, right after this, I'm going to a call with a very senior member of their team who makes it a point to have a standing check-in with me to understand kind of like 
every call has kind of two parts. How are things going? And what else could we be doing? What's next? What are we going to do yep. more with the beverage? And do you have ideas for other programs? Um, and we really appreciate that. And I think the other thing that you said is 100% true. Finding that partner that has experience. And again, not just the, the brand, but also the individual within small commercial is really important if you're in small commercial. I think looking at a large company that has very highly rated paper that has like this sterling brand, but that's never really done small commercial and they see it as like a potential growth area for them. I think you, I, I would advise entrepreneurs to really have conviction before they jump in because that company has to make money too. And if they find that after a year, small commercials not getting the kind of traction they want, or it's not performing as they want, they're just going to exit that class. And that's what they have to do because they have their own shareholder pressures. And that's going to leave you as a startup in a really tough position. Um, like you said, that long-term commitment from Accelerant was very attractive to us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was smiling as you said that about that call. Because I said that, that's essentially the structure of all my podcasts. <laughs> How are things going? What are you going to do next? Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I suppose on that is the if you're trying to build different verticals obviously there's there's talent challenges with that because you need to get the sector specific individuals that understand those those verticals um yeah. how are you thinking about approaching that is it is it something you put much thought into uh, you know attracting the talent from those different verticals um yeah is it something you've had to think about as part of the business planning Absolutely. I, I honestly, it's one of those things that keeps me up at night because I'm always thinking about it because I see how important it is to have that, those, not just the right people, because of course, every business needs the right people. But in our world, we kind of want someone who is always going to be good at multiple things. And that's always a tricky proposition. They have to be really good at their craft as a, as an underwriter, as a manager of an underwriting business. They have to appreciate the role that software can play to drive efficiencies and improvements and precision in what they do. Um, and they have to do that while also just like being a good manager and being a really good practitioner absolutely does not mean you're going to be a good manager and vice versa. Um, so the way we think about each of these verticals is that they're basically going to have business unit leaders. You can think of them as basically being the visible president of that program. So that mm -hmm. person will have P&L responsibilities, but they'll also have the two key metrics that they'll always be thinking about is sort of premium growth as well as loss ratio. So naturally, we want someone that has expertise within that line of business, uh, but who's also going to be comfortable managing a team, working towards goals, managing a budget. Um, and then I think those sort of the rare birds that we hope to hire are folks who are not only good at that particular category, but more broadly have an expertise for casualty lines. And so if the next program or if the third program is casualty focused, that first person can, can help the person who will be in charge of the third program in terms of like just a more of a portfolio view of, of casualty. Another example would be like a property expert who's just happens to be really good at insuring uh, certain types of property or an inland marine expert. That's really where I feel like you get that, that next level of magic within your organization. And then, like you said, it's kind of like staying out of their way and letting them do their thing and just sort of checking in with them to see how you can help them. And honestly, that really leads to kind of one of the things that transparently is one of our challenges. I'm always happy to sort of speak transparently about um, we're doing a lot of things well, and that's great. But of course, we have challenges like any business that wants to create value. And it's there are these sort of two opposing forces of growing a business 
from a premium perspective and growing it in a way that is attractive while also maintaining a high quality loss ratio, right? Like those two things have been at odds in lots of insure techs. The sort of 1.0 class took the approach of let's just grow at all costs. We'll figure, we'll have enough data to then figure out the underwriting piece and the loss ratio piece. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's worked out terribly well for most of the people who've taken that approach. Um, I think that's also interestingly very similar to what technology startups are sort of like going through right now. It's like a reset of the market. Um, and in particular, what's challenging in our world with a casualty line that has a longer tail, you produce the premiums now. And although you say loss ratio is the main thing you're optimizing for, you often won't know your loss ratio performance for several years until mm-hmm. afterwards. The loss performance of this year, for example, our first year, we're not going to really realize for two or three years from now. And in that time, we'll have already launched on the programs and there's going to be other distractions. And so really keeping focused and back to your question about talent, having individuals who can sort of block out the noise and focus on what's most important right in front of them is just so important. And that's just something that software, at least I don't believe it's at the point where it, it like that can be done through software alone. You absolutely need experienced individuals who can do that and who can think of clever ways to kind of use the software to suit their needs, to accelerate their needs. Mm. Bobby, I, I would ask you another question, but that is such a wonderful uh, promotion for what I do for a living that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to full time on the podcast there. Because <laughs> if you ever need, if you ever need experienced people <laughs> that can help you get to where you want to go, that's, that's, that's what the talent industry is there to provide. And that's what Finpro do. But no, joking aside, I knew you had a hard stop now. So, like, and it's super busy. I'm really interested in what you do. I think taking those vertical approaches are, is fascinating. And I, I, I really want to see how you kind of continue to grow the business. So, um, Thank you, Bobby. Really appreciate you taking time to be on the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Thanks again for having me. I uh, I enjoyed it. Thanks, pal.